open your Bibles, if, if you will, to or return with me to Romans chapter 6. And um, as I said Sunday morning, I, um, I wanted to address a topic tonight, but it's not as if I have had to go out of my way to come to this topic. The topic really springs from the text itself. Um, and it is, of course, the topic of assurance. But that, I, I, I do want to make abundantly clear, is not, um, is not so much the main focus of the Apostle Paul in chapter 6 of Romans, but it is a, a focus that I think he is concerned pastorally that the, that the people to whom he writes have a, a, a good sense of their safety and their assurances that they are secure uh, as in, in their relationship with God. Now, guys, um, let, let me try to give us a, a run and start. By the way, um, let me tell you one little quick story. I told you this Sunday, but I'm going to repeat it. Um, we were in a staff elder retreat, and our staff elder retreat goes like this. The staff gets together on Thursday, and then on Friday afternoon, the elders come, and we share a meeting together, and then the staff goes home, and then we meet with the elders. So I had an occasion over three days to um, uh, ask the staff, I said, how many of our congregation do you think are wrestling with the issue of assurance? And that's when the staff said uh, 90% of our congregation, which I thought was extraordinarily high, and, and I... Um, didn't know whether to believe them or not. And then the next day, I asked um, uh, the, the elders, uh, do you think people in our congregation are wrestling with the issue of assurance? And they said yes. And I said, give me a percentage. And they said 95%. <laughs> so when I, when I began to prepare um, for tonight, the issue in, in my study came up. And I thought, well, I need to address it. I need to address it in and of itself. Um, I'll show you a little, I mean, I'll kind of get us a run and start into it, but primarily what I want to speak towards tonight is the issue of assurance. Let me tell you where we stopped last week. We, were, we are um, in the midst of trying to figure out what it means to uh, who died to sin. That is, those three words, died to sin. What is the Apostle Paul teaching us with those three words. Um, and I told you, uh, uh, I listed either five or six things that he doesn't mean. And then I tried to suggest to you that, um, that there are really only two possibilities for every person that is alive. And he is either in Adam or in Christ. Now, if he's in Christ... Um, it is not that we are merely forgiven and have some ticket to heaven stuck in our pocket, uh, but we have been transferred out of one kingdom into another kingdom. Remember we looked at that passage in Colossians 1. We've been transferred from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. We've been transferred from a kingdom where there is a reign of death to where there is a reign of grace. Um, so, what I'm suggesting is that that reign or being transferred out of that one territory into this other territory where we live under the reign of grace, and this is the, kind of the last sentence that I said last week, uh, that that reign of grace is so powerful 
that it guarantees, that it is guaranteed to produce certain results. That's how we ended last week. Now, what results? What results can be guaranteed if I am under this reign of grace? Well, first, uh, res- the first thing that is guaranteed is my ultimate, complete, and final salvation. If I have been transferred from that kingdom to this kingdom by God's sovereign grace, the, the effect of that is to make certain my ultimate salvation. And, and what Paul's alarm is that if we are under the power, uh, of, we're under this power of grace that is in opposition to sin, how could anybody possibly say they wanted to continue to live in it? Now, one other quick thing. Uh, one of the key words in this text is the word live. It's in verse 2. How shall we who died live? Um, now, guys, you've heard this before, but I want to show it to you one other quick time. But um, this is a Greek verb that is found in the present tense. In the present tense in the Greek language, the, the action that's being described is an ongoing, continual action. Um, let, let me illustrate. I think this text illustrates it better than this one. If you can find 1 John 3 real quick. 1 John 3. Because if you read this 1 John 3 passage, uh, it'll startle you unless you know what I'm saying right now. 1 John 3, verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Whoa. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, guys, reading that on the surface, that seems to suggest to us that if anyone sins, they could not possibly be born of God. That would leave all of us out, wouldn't it? Do you see what, on the surface of that, how you could go to a place which would be very unhealthy? But what's being described here, again, it's a, it's a Greek verb that is found in the present tense. The idea is, in fact, some of your translations, I think the New American Standard, for one, uh, adds the word continues, I think. But the idea is, whoever has been born of God does not ongoingly continue in sin. And um, because he cannot ongoingly, continually sin. Now, John is not teaching some sinless perfection, and neither is Paul. Paul is not saying that we don't sin, but he is saying that under the reign of grace, we don't, it is not the bent of our existence. It is not the bent of our life um, that we are being progressively delivered uh, from um, sin's taints, but to not trying to suggest in any way that we are sinless. But indeed, by grace, we have been transferred out of its territory. We have been transferred out of a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. And that's what this whole idea of died to sin. Now, here we go. There is, however, an enormous difference um, in, in so many ways that affects us as Christians. There is an enormous difference between 
being in a given position and realizing that I am in that position. Now, here's my classic illustration, ladies and gentlemen, and, and, and you, you know this one. Um, I should have looked this up today in terms of the date. But um, in the 1860s, the then 19th President of the United States made a, a monumental declaration. Um, every African American in this city knows about this declaration. It was... The, uh, the thing that set them free. You know it. You studied it in your history courses. It was called the Emancipation Proclamation. And by so doing, Abraham Lincoln freed every slave that existed in the United States, also in the South, because the war hadn't been won or lost at that point. So the effect of the Emancipation Proclamation was to free every slave that existed in the states of, uh, of, in this continent. But, and I think you also know this to be historically true <coughs> and it's historically verifiable, even though there was a legal statement declaring that they were free, many of the slaves never left the plantation. Nor did they ever change anything about their behaviors, their actions, and their mindset. They, uh, they were, by governmental decree, liberated. But even though that was true legally about them, they continued to live as if they were under the domination of slave owners. That is historically, as I said, verifiable. Now, my point is, ladies and gentlemen, and I think you can see the point, um, many Christians are, have been transferred by grace from a kingdom of death, from a, a reign of death to a reign of grace, and they are legally, divinely, um, liberated. But, at the emotional level, at the experiential level, they continue to wrestle and struggle madly with the fact that, um, that I am indeed one of his and am guaranteed safe arrival at uh, Canaan's shores or at uh, Heaven's shores. Now, guys, let, let me give you just kind of one of the ways that I hear it in, the, in my office. Um, I believe that God loves sinners. The problem I have is believing that God loves me. You ever said that? Um, so, here we understand of this legal, divine proclamation and deliverance on our behalf, accomplished by God Himself, and we still wrestling at an experiential, at, a, at an existential, let me, let me put it in its lowest common form, in the feelings level. It's the feelings level that I can't get. And therefore, continue to miss out on this wonderful sense that I am not only legally free, but I am really free. And, and all the enjoyments that come along with that.
Now, guys, here's, here's where I think we are really making a mistake. Because, um, let's imagine for a, a moment that somebody comes to you and says that they're really struggling over the issue of assurance. How do you counsel them? What do you say? Guys, here's how it basically goes. And I, I'm telling you, I think you can relate to this. I, in fact, I would love to just give us, I wish we had time for it to say, well, and this is what I'd tell them. I'd say, mm. and, and, and basically, here is going to be the train of thought. Well, um, don't you believe in Jesus? Well, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus. And, 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 and you did repent of your sins, didn't you? Yeah, I, 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 I did. Then, then why are you still struggling with assurance? And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that is completely backwards. Because the advice that you are given, giving to a sufferer is to once again return to examine what they have done. When, ladies and gentlemen, our significant enjoyment of assurance is going to come, not when we examine more closely what we have done, but what has been done for us in Christ. We need to point people not towards their faith. Because I want to tell you something. Your faith stinks. So does mine. It's flawed from the beginning to the end. Your obedience stinks. So does mine. From beginning to end. You need to repent of your repentance. It stinks. So does mine. And I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, what you're doing is saying to somebody, let's go back and examine how you believed. Let's go back and examine how you repented. And you will always end up in a, in a posture of uncertainty if that is the way you direct them. Because, ladies and gentlemen, if I examine what it is that I have done, it will always be flawed. We have to point people to the other end of the spectrum from what they did and whether their faith is enough faith. No, it's not. It's not. Your faith is flawed. Every one of us could, and every one of us, every one of us do cry out to God, I believe. Help me in my own belief. And it's interesting in the New Testament that Jesus never rejects flawed faith or little faith. He rebukes it, but he never rejects it. And guys, if you are caught up in this vicious circle, well, let me see, when, how did I pray? When I prayed, when I lived down, you know, did I really mean it? When I... No, ladies and gentlemen, you need to go gaze, not at when you committed yourself to Christ, but when Christ committed himself to you. That's what you need to understand. I am saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, the primary contributor to the lack of assurance is a flawed, defective understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith. 
There is nothing that I can do for you more pastoral, more kind, more loving, more helpful than to help you understand the provisions of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And once you get it, not only are you legally set free, ladies and gentlemen, you are set free because you understand that the issue is not what you did. It was not your commitment to Christ. It was His commitment to you. And that's why you're safe. Because He has made such grand provisions for us. There is a sense, ladies and gentlemen. Well, in this, in this discussion, I, I can say what I'm about to say. There is a sense that the most important words in the Bible are spoken by Jesus from the cross. When he says, Tetelestai, it is finished. And, I, and I've told you that story before. It's a term that's found on the bottom of uh, little uh, receipts that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Remember that story? You know, they, they, they found all this grand discovery in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and one of the things they found is all these receipts, and then stamped on the bottom of it was the word to Tetelestai, the same word that used Jesus spoke when he was hanging from a cross. What did it mean on the receipts? It meant painful. Gang, that's what we have to get our minds around. That whatever was necessary to save sinners as rotten as we has been done. It's been accomplished. And every time you dive into your heart and lift up a rock and look at yourself, you're going to see something ugly. You need to look at that, lift, look at that stuff under that rock just long enough to realize, oh my goodness, I must escape back to the safety of Christ Jesus. Don't look at it. It will always disappoint you. Now, um, there's a couple of things that I want to develop. First of all, guys, I, I just want you to know that assurance is a possibility. A biblical possibility. Gang, uh, the reason I start like this is that how many of you, I mean, if you wouldn't mind lifting your hands, how many of you come out of a Roman Catholic background? Uh, just a handful. But do you realize that Roman Catholicism calls assurance a damnable and pernicious heresy? That it's woven into the Council of Trent? That assurance is nothing more than presumption? Now my point is, if you've got some kind of Roman Catholic background, the whole idea of having assurance is going to be, oh, no kidding. Now, guys, do not, uh, um, may I say, hey, may I hasten to say, does presumption exist? Sure it does. Sure it does. Are there people who presume that all is well when all is not well? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Jesus says that. You say unto me, Lord, Lord, and I say to you, I never knew you. Are there those who presume upon grace? Yes, yes, yes. But that's not then to say that assurance is never possible. Oh, no. And, and just as as quickly as I can, but the one that, that I love the most is the one that is sung at funerals sometimes. And um, 
Uh, I wish I knew the tune. I'd sing it. But listen to this. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Who said that? Job. Job said that. A man who had every reason in the world to think my circumstances have fallen apart, who had every reason in the world to bolt. And he's the one that says, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And on the last day, I'll see him. All I'm trying to suggest to you is that assurance is indeed a possibility. Romans chapter 8, which is the one that's so familiarly, uh, neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things created nor things not created, none of that should be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Another very clarion voice on the part of Paul um, uh, assuring us that he felt confident. Um, the other one that is often used is in 1 John chapter 5 which is uh, John saying, I'm writing you this whole book so that you might have a sense of assurance. This is verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. It is the desire of, the, of, the, uh, of John the writer for us to have that kind of safety and comfort and assurance that I, we are safe in our relationship with God. So, th- that's my first point. Or my second point or third, whatever way. Uh, you, you must understand that indeed... Assurance is a biblical possibility. Now, let me introduce you to this. And I cannot be um, as biblically clear, but I am confident that this is the truth. And I'm telling you, nothing to a suffering soul will be more beautiful than my next words. You may very well indeed be a saved man or woman and never arrive at a complete, full assurance. Now, guys, I wish that I could show you text after text, which I cannot do. I can show you a couple of three texts that talk about full assurance. Um, Hebrews 6.12, Hebrews 10.22, and Colossians 2.2, where the text talks about full assurance. And another text in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5, that talks about much assurance. Those two seem to be different for me. It's different to me. Um, I, the, the, the text that I've already mentioned, I believe, help me in my unbelief, I think is a reference to the fact that here's a man who had saving faith, and yet knew or had struggles with his own, uh, his own condition. What I want to do for you for about, I, I won't, I, I can, very frankly, there are page after page after page that I could read you. Uh, eight, ten, I could, each, I, I could read you 11 pages of this. I, I, we don't have time. What I've tried to do is pick out names that might sound familiar. Now, this book was written in the late 1800s. This is by J.C. Ryle who was an Anglican um, minister, an Anglican, you know, the Church of England. He is um, he's very trustworthy. In fact, one of the first books I ever read as a Christian is this book right here. I would commend it to you. It's, it's rough sledding, but it's, it's wonderful work by uh, J.C. Ryle. But um, in, he has a chapter on assurance. 
And in the back of the chapter, he has notes. This is the only chapter that he had, that's true. I mean, he doesn't have notes in any other chapter. But it's 11 pages of quotes from, let me just read you. These are extracts from English divines. Now, that's a, that's a word that you won't get, but uh, an English divine is a, uh, an English biblical scholar. Showing that there is a difference between faith and assurance. That a believer may be justified and accepted with God and yet not enjoy a comfortable knowledge and persuasion of his own safety and that the weakest faith in Christ, if it be true, will save a man as surely as the strongest. Now, that's, that's just the heading. That's what all of these quotes are about to prove that point. Um, I've, I've tried to find people that you know. Like, um, you know the name of Latimer, don't you? <laughs> well... Not that one. Um, Latimer and Ridley, the one that was burned at the stake. You, you, do you know that name? Does that ring a bell? I mean, if you know anything about church history, uh, Bishop Latimer, here's, here's his statement. I want to read you the whole thing. Um, the mercy of God is greater than all the sins in the world, but we sometimes are in such a case that we think we have no faith at all, or if, if we have any, it is very feeble and weak. And therefore, these are two things, to have faith and to have the feeling of faith. That's Latimer, who went to his grave, I mean, went to his death, uh, burned to, uh, 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 on a stake, at, at a stake. Um, this is, you won't know this name, William Perkins, but if you know anything about the Puritans, you'll know the name William Perkins. Uh, weak faith may fail in the applying or in the apprehension and appropriating of Christ's benefits to man's own self. Did you get that? Weak faith may not get to the Enjoyment, but it is still genuine and real faith. Um, listen to this sentence. Some think they have no faith at all because they have no full assurance. Uh, that's Richard Sives, by the way. We've got a couple of his vibes in our, in our, in our bookstore. Um, but what he's saying is, don't think that. Don't think that just because you uh, have no full assurance, you don't have faith at all. Um... Uh, how about Thomas Watson? Do you know that name? I've got four volumes of Thomas Watson. Uh, you may have the water of the Spirit poured on you in sanctification, though not the oil of gladness and assurance. There may be faith of adherence and not of evidence. Um, there may be life in the root where there is no fruit in the branches and faith in the heart where there is where no fruit of assurance. That's Thomas Watson. Um, um, oh, here's Stephen Charnock. Stephen Charnock has probably got the greatest two-volume set on the, um, on the existence and the attributes of God. I, I've, I've referred to this book on several occasions as the volume on the first person of the Trinity. In fact, I was on the um, uh, Stairmaster one day, and I happened to be on the Stairmaster next to Bruce Meyer. And um, and I was mentioning this this great volume, and he said, "Oh yes, it's two volumes, uh, ponderous, ponderous work." And um, dead gumming, he's he's already read it. And I thought, well, dead gumming, if Bruce has read it, I'm going to get it out and I'm going to read it myself. And I got it out, and I made it through about 200 pages. There's another 900 left that I haven't made it through. Um, this is Stephen Charnock. A want of assurance is not unbelief. 
My brother and sister, there's, there's nothing that I can be more pastoral in saying to you. I want you to enjoy the full assurance of your faith. But just because you don't have that, it does not necessarily mean that you do not possess saving faith. Would it be better were you to enjoy full assurance? Yes, it would. Now, I'll tell you that in just a minute. But, just because you don't have it, please don't ever conclude that what you have is not genuine faith. I could go on. Let me... Um, assurance is not essential to the being of faith. It is a strong faith, but we read likewise of a weak faith, little faith, faith like a grain of a mustard seed. True saving faith in Jesus Christ is only distinguishable by its different degrees. But in every degree and in every subject, it is universally of the same kind. That is, if you have faith that is not as big as somebody's, it's still at its heart, in its essence, it is a saving commitment. It is a saving faith. And whereas the one with great faith might be able to enjoy some of the, the, um, the comforts that you do not enjoy, that does not indicate that what you possess is not genuine and real and saving. Um, I'll, I'll stop because um, I want to say two other things and then I'll, I'll quit. My concern, ladies and gentlemen, is um, I can't tell you. I mean, I was in a conversation just recently with a dear woman in this church who has an event in her past that absolutely crushes her to think about. And as she thinks of it, she continues to go in and out of the comforts of our faith. I bet you every person in this room has one of those. Every one of you. I'm not saying that's bad. Well, it is bad. But we've all got the things that we don't want the rest of the people of God to know about. Don't we? Don't dare shake your head up and down. And yet, guys, if I, if I, can't, if I can't look at her and say, but my dear, do you not understand the provisions of the gospel? That grace is greater than all our sin. I'm telling you, I leave her in absolute despair. And ultimately, my friends, your lack of assurance grows out of simply nodding your head to Jesus one day and forgetting it. Now, I'm not... I'm not I'm glad you did nod your head to Jesus. I'm glad you're a saved man or woman. But I'm telling you, the gospel is far better news than you ever dreamed. I, I, I must make a confession real quickly because I've told you this story before, but it was interesting because I told it at the staff retreat and the elders retreat and they acted like they'd never heard it before. So I thought, well, heck, nobody listens to my stories. I'll tell them again. <clears throat> um, I, I know you don't believe this, but I'm a name dropper. Um, but when I was pastoring in Ocala, I was very good and close friends with R.C. Sproul. Um, was 
he was in my home on several occasions. He spoke at our church. Uh, you know, we, we just, when I went through my doctoral program at Reform Seminary, I bet you I had supper with, I mean, we had to go up there for two weeks, and, and I, we went out to supper every night. It was his wife, R.C., Chuck Green, and me, the four of us. And we went to his apartment, we played piano, we played computers, we had ice cream. I mean, we, we, we were just together all the time. Now, when I moved up here, uh, I've seen him twice uh, since then, and of course, um, I hope he would remember my name still. But uh, um, the, the point is, we were invited to his home for supper one night. And it was when I was going through that terrible thing in Ocala that I'd love to tell you all about one of these days. But, um, and, I, and I went to our... Now, guys, I had a seminary degree in my pocket, and I'd been pastoring for roughly nine years. And I, and I said to... Uh, uh, Desta and Susie were in the kitchen, you know, putting stuff on the tables and... On the table and... And uh, it was just R.C. and me in the, in the living room. And, I, and he knew what I was going through. He was my biggest ally. And, um, I, and I kept telling him that I was struggling with assurance. And I'm telling you, he looked at me and he said, You do not understand the doctrine of justification by faith. And I'm telling you, my dear brother and sister, Part of our deficiency in assurance is because we've not been willing to do the work of understanding the provisions of the gospel. We got a ticket to heaven stuck in our pocket and got sprayed with a coat of asbestos so we wouldn't burn. <laughs> see, that, that amazes me that y'all laugh at that. I probably said that 25 times. You know, see, they're not listening. They're not listening. <laughs> but, but we got that far. And that's all we want. And now, as we've walked with the Lord for a while, then at night, we remember what we did in college. We remember what happened in the first marriage. We remember what we did when we got fired last. We remember. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, Satan's fangs are bigger at night. Aren't they? And our souls wrestle. And then we start thinking, well, what kind of faith did I have? Stop it! Stop it, stop it, stop it! I'll tell you what kind of faith you had. You had an imperfect faith. You had shoddy faith. You had weak faith. You had flawed faith. Yes. And it is saving. Now, if you wrestle, then what you need to do is get yourself a good commentary on the book of Romans and start working through Romans 4, 5, and 6. Now, or we can, I can teach you how to use the Hewlett-Packard computer. I mean, my point is, the, the Christian church is wondering, what about these how-tos? I'll tell you a how-to. How to bring health and comfort to your own soul. Understand the great dimensions of God's grace. You know, guys, um, I, 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 I tend towards the histrionic. You know that. Histrionic does not mean history. Histrionic means dramatic. I tend towards the dramatic. But, I, <laughs> but I'm telling you, you, you can call this what you like. You can say Jimmy's playing for the emotions, whatever. That, that, I don't care what you say. I'm telling you, I'm 54 years old, and I'm ready to go home. There's only one thing I want to live for.
only one thing. And that is to understand grace better so that I can teach it to you. That's all that's worth living for me is to plumb the depths of grace so that our people can enjoy and drink deeply at the well. One other thing. So one of the concerns that I have as a pastor in this area of assurance is your own personal comfort and quietude of soul. Yes. But there's another reason. And we'll close with this. I told you this story before too. But I told it to the staff and they said, well, that's a great story. I love that. And I thought, well, I'll tell it again. Um, actually, it comes out of this book. Um, imagine that we all, uh, let's say, Greg and I are brothers. I'm a lot cuter than he is, I realize, but I got the looks and he didn't. But Greg, we're brothers. I mean, real brothers. Real brothers. I mean, my last name is, I mean, his last name is the same as mine. All right? So we're brothers. And our daddy dies, and we inherit a, a uh, plot of land. Plot of land. And it's identical pieces of property. Ten acres, side by side. You know, no trees on it, just, you know, nice, um, you know, farmland. Ten acres, side by side. Well, my brother here, he gets out the tractor and starts planting and plowing and, and pulling up the weeds and, and watering and sowing and doing all that business. And, and, but I am a little bit more uncertain about whether that piece of land is really mine. And so I go down to the title office and the deed office and I spend days and weeks searching the titles and making sure that indeed that piece of property is mine. Now here's the point. Come harvest time, who's got the most fruit? I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, one of the motives to fruit bearing among the people of God is a rich assurance that they are safe. Our Father, I do pray that your people will benefit by what's been said and that they will be able to more and more plumb these depths alongside me, Lord. I am not there. These are these are truths that go against the grain of everything that we've been taught. We've been taught that to, to perform is to be somebody and to earn your favor. And now we're being told that performance means nothing. And we come to Christ knowingly by grace through faith alone. And then we get into the kingdom and start the performance routine all over again. And it is killing us. Oh, Heavenly Father, teach me grace. Teach me the ins and the outs and the dimensions and the, the breadth and the depth of Your love for Your people so that I can assure them that grace is greater. Greater than all our sin. We pray it in Jesus' name.